Before we get into this week's episode, a quick request for a moment of your time. Deep Dive is conducting a survey of its listeners to find out where you think the podcast can improve. If you do have a spare moment, please visit jtimes.jp dd to fill out the survey. It would be a massive help if you do. And thank you to everyone who's filled it out so far. Once more, that is jtimes.jp dd. Thank you. From the Japan Times, I'm Oscar Boyd, and this is Deep Dive. This week, the name of the game is rugby, and that's what this episode is all about. Because on Friday, the Rugby World Cup 2019 kicks off in Japan, with its opening ceremony and first match between the host nation and Russia in the capital's Tokyo Stadium. Over the next six weeks, around half a million fans are expected to come to Japan to watch the games from overseas, which culminate on November 2nd with the final in Yokohama. Coming up in this episode, we'll get a preview of the tournament from the Japan Times' rugby experts Andrew McCurdy and Elliot Samuels. And after that, we'll travel to Lake Kawaguchi to meet with triple cancer survivor Patrick McIntosh, who cycled almost 12,000 kilometres from the Twickenham Rugby Stadium in the UK all the way to Japan to watch the games and raise money and awareness for the prevention of cancer. But first, we're in the busy World Rugby headquarters to have a conversation with the head of the Rugby World Cup, Alan Gilpin. So Alan, thanks very much for taking the time to join us on our podcast today. My first question to you, the Rugby World Cup starts this Friday. How are you feeling and is the country ready? Um, look, first of all, uh, we're excited. Um, this has been a long time coming for us, you know, 10 years of working here with, with our colleagues in Japan towards this World Cup. Um, the country's prepared, the venues and the cities look and, and are great. Um, they're definitely ready for, for some, some rugby and, you know, the teams are all here now. So, you know, it's, it's been a period of confidence. Now it's a period of real excitement. And you've got six weeks to welcome around 500,000 fans from overseas. What can they expect uh, while they're here? I think they can expect, as the teams have just experienced, the most incredible welcome. You know, the, the kind of Japanese and Montanashi um, in full flow. Um, they can expect some great rugby. We think that uh, this is going to be the most competitive Rugby World Cup we've ever had. Um, I think they can expect to see great kind of Japanese heritage up and down the country. The host cities and the prefectures really bringing this tournament alive. And there's, there's a huge uh, engagement here. We're seeing incredible uh, numbers of, of Japanese fans going to team training sessions, getting involved in welcoming the teams. And I think the international fans are going to see something very different to what they're used to, which is brilliant. You've talked about the host cities up and down the country. So there are 12 of them. Um, they start up in, up in Sapporo in the north, go down to Oita and Kumamoto and Fukuoka in the south. Has this been the most ambitious Rugby World Cup in terms of setting it up? I'm not sure about the most ambitious. It brings its own types of challenges. Japan were always very clear um, that they wanted this to be a, a tournament that embraced all of Japan. So as you say, right up in Hokkaido in the north and down to Kushu in the south, um, 12 very different host cities. All the venues feel very different when you're in them. And again, I think fans will really love that. Um, and there's, there's huge engagement. I think all of those cities feel like this is a part of, or they're part of, a, of this World Cup. And, you know, there's, there's a great buzz. And what have been the biggest challenges in uh, operating the Rugby World Cup in Japan? Look, I think for us, we're probably uh, used to doing things in a particular way and things are done differently here. And so th there's been an adjustment for, for both them as hosts, for, for the Japanese Rugby Union as hosts, and for us as World Rugby coming and putting on a tournament here. So learnings 
uh, or le a journey for, for, for all of us, um, they've been great partners. Um, they've been fantastically engaged. The government have been very engaged. Again, the host cities and the local authorities have been very engaged. So I think the challenges have just been different to different World Cups. This is now a really big event. You know, it's complex. The scale's big. There's 55 different team camps involved. Obviously, the 12 venues, the 16 fan zones, you know, those sorts of uh, individual operations are, are big in their own right. And you, and you put them all together and wrap them into six weeks. It's a, it's a big event, but, but one that um, they've been brilliant in planning and we think they're going to be brilliant in delivering. And this is the first time uh, the Rugby World Cup's been hosted outside of the core nations of rugby. Um, what do you think that means for the game and what do you think the legacy of it will, of this tournament will be? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The first, the first World Cup in Asia, um, the first World Cup outside what you might call our kind of strongest uh, host, traditional host nations. Um, again, 10 years in the making. The vision for the tournament was all about this being an opportunity to grow the sport, not just in Japan, but in Asia. We've spent a lot of time uh, with Asia Rugby as, as our regional association with our stakeholders here in Japan and more broadly making sure that we deliver on that promise and we deliver on that legacy. So whether that's some of the work we're doing with Child Fund in relation to, to raising uh, money and awareness for them through Rugby World Cup and, and what they do with Pass It Back across Asia, um, using rugby as a uh, as a platform to teach uh, disadvantaged kids uh, great life skills, whether it's what we're doing in terms of our flagship Get Into Rugby programme that we've rolled out and you know nearly 2 million additional uh, boys and girls playing rugby in Asia as a result of the work we've done and the investment we've made in the last few years. And importantly here, there are tens of thousands of more kids in elementary schools in Japan with access to rugby now than there were two years ago. So again, the, I think the... The groundwork's in place for that legacy, you know, after this tournament is finished to really, um, to really bed in. What we've now got to do is deliver a great tournament, get the whole nation really engaged and really excited and get people wanting to be part of playing, watching and participating in rugby in the future. How important do you think that uh, 2015 game between South Africa and Japan was? You know, you've got a grin on your face which suggests you get asked this a lot. But how important do you think that game was in terms of setting the groundwork for excitement and uptake amongst Japanese fans here? I think it was hugely important. Um, I, you know, it's hard to imagine actually what things would be like if that if that amazing game in Brighton hadn't happened. Um, the fact that it ignited a kind of passion here with Japanese supporters for Rugby World Cup, not just for the Japanese team, but they, that's the the highlight of their history in Rugby World Cup, and, and they've been part of every one. Um, that's a great platform on which to engage, on which to sell tickets, on which to build the great television audiences we're going to see. So as I say, it's hard to imagine what it would be like now had we not had that, and it's probably the most valuable game of rugby ever played. But at the same time, do you think the Olympics has kind of taken away from some of the uh, hype surrounding the Rugby World Cup? Obviously, you've got two major tournaments or sporting events within two years. Do you think the Olympics has posed a challenge to world rugby? No, we don't. And I think there was a time, probably four years ago, when you know we, we, we feared that might be the case. Um, we've certainly seen some great synergies. I mean, the volunteering programme is a great example. 13,000 volunteers for Rugby World Cup, many of whom are part of the Olympic volunteering programme and movement as well. We've obviously seen some synergies here in Tokyo. I think what's been really interesting about this Rugby World Cup and about the way that, again, Japan and the host cities have, have approached it is outside of Tokyo, whether you're in Kamaishi, Sapporo, Oita, Fukuoka, they're part of this tournament. This is their World Cup. Those local communities are really engaged. And if anything, in a sense, again, the Olympics being the Tokyo Olympics has kind of helped them really grab hold of Rugby World Cup as an opportunity. So I think on balance, we just see benefits from that.
The other thing that's happening this week, uh, Friday, is the next round of the global climate strikes. Um, how has Rugby World Cup uh, embraced sustainability and how have you encouraged it within your Japanese partners? Yeah, look, it's always a difficult area. We're a, we're a global event. We've obviously got you know, 20 teams in this tournament, 19 of which by, you know, by simple definition are, are travelling here to Japan and, as you say, a, a huge number of international supporters travelling here to Japan. You know, this is a country that does... Um, sustainability well um, you know the the way that the, the stadiums are approached in terms of spectator uh, services is you know is, is great we've got to encourage all of the international fans to to be part of that um, when they're here in Japan and I think again rugby's blessed with great traveling supporters so that that message is not a hard one to sell we work hard as you can imagine with our with our partners our, our global partners uh, who support rugby year in, year out, and, and very much Rugby World Cup to address some of those issues. And we're working hard with the authorities here in, in Japan to do that. It's, the reality is it's not an easy problem to solve for a, for a global event like ours, but we're doing what we can to address it. You've said it's one of the strongest tournaments to date at this point. Before we start, who do you think is going to win? Look, I, I don't know who's going to win. I think we genuinely have a World Cup where... The, the, the outcomes are harder to predict than ever before. We're going to see some, some great games. I think there are four or five teams capable on their day of, of all beating each other at the top. Uh, we've seen that in the changes in World Rugby's rankings uh, very recently. And, yeah, there are, there are a number of teams going into this, um, targeting some big games and knowing that if, if things fall for them, they can win the tournament. Well, Alan, thank you very much for your time. Pleasure. Thank you. That was Alan Gilpin, the head of the Rugby World Cup and World Rugby's Chief Operating Officer. My thanks to him for joining us on Deep Dive. Now, back in the studio, I'm joined by two of the Japan Times' foremost rugby experts, Elliot Samuels and Andrew McCurdy, to learn a little bit more about the state of Japanese rugby and what to expect from this year's Rugby World Cup. Elliot, Andrew, thank you for joining me in the studio today. And Andrew, I'm going to address my first question to you. Um, Japan is not usually considered one of the traditional homes of rugby, uh, but you recently wrote an article exploring the history of the game here. So could you start by explaining to us where rugby began in Japan? Well, rugby has a long history in Japan, probably longer than most people would realise. Officially, it came to Japan in 1899 when two uh, graduates of Cambridge University introduced the game to students at Keio University. But there is also evidence that um, it came to Japan earlier than that, um, and Yokohama Football Club, which is the oldest rugby club in Japan, um, formed in 1866. So it's got a long history that actually stems all the way back to the middle and late 19th century. Yeah, and a lot of it was influenced directly um, by England. Um, so Hanazono Rugby Stadium, um, where the National High School Rugby is played, um, that was modelled on Twickenham. Um, and that was built when Prince Chichibu was, he was on a train going to Osaka and um, he suggested that they should build a rugby ground there. <laughs> as easy as that. Because, it, because rugby was, um, it was gaining in popularity at the time and he thought that it would, um, you know, revitalise the area. So it was just his idea, yeah, just why not build a rugby <laughs> Let's have a stadium, stadium there. <laughs> <laughs> and so when did rugby really take off within the country and, uh, and rise to some level of popularity? Well, um, one of the traditional power bases of Japanese rugby is the universities, and they started to form teams at the start of the 20th century, teams like uh, 
Keio University, Waseda University, Meiji University, and um, they played each other and they would form uh, rivalries. They then established uh, All Japan University Rugby Championship in 1964. And did these games gain much popularity? Did, you, did they get big audiences from the Japanese? Yes, um, by the 1980s. They would, they would play games at Tokyo's National Stadium and Waseda played Meiji in a game that wasn't even the final. It was just like a regional qualifier. And they played in front of the third highest crowd at National Stadium ever. The biggest crowd being the opening ceremony for the Tokyo Olympics. The second biggest crowd being the closing ceremony for the Tokyo Olympics. And then after that was this uh, Waseda-Meiji game that had a, lo- a lottery for the tickets because the demand was something like 10 times as much as the people that got in. Okay, so this rivalry was kind of really fueling quite a strong demand and interest within the game. Yes, yeah, it was huge. And when did the Japanese national team actually form? They started in 1930. And they the national team has played in every World Cup since the World Cup began in 1987 as well. So the national team has a long history, but within the context of the World Cup and within the context of world rugby, not a particularly successful one. (laughs) I think Elliot can jump in there. Um, What notable appearances uh, has Japan had within the Rugby World Cup so far? Well, uh, I guess their most uh, unfortunate appearance was uh, in 1995. Against your country? Against uh, New Zealand, the All Blacks, uh, in South Africa. That was actually the first um, World Cup that South Africa took part in, I believe, um, coming back from... Um, isolation after apartheid. I think the score was something like 145 to 17. In favour of New Zealand. In favour of New Zealand, um, with uh, Mark Ellis scoring, I think, what remains is a record six tries in one in one game. A combination of raw power and dazzling skills saw the All Blacks set a record-busting pace against Japan. This was the build-up to the first of Mark Ellis's six tries, two more than the previous best for an individual. Um, and interestingly, it wasn't even New Zealand's... Um, a team at that point, it was just a B team. Um, they rested players like Jonah Loma, who became one of the stars of that tournament. Okay, so that was the 1995 Rugby World Cup in which they had a bit of a devastating performance against New Zealand. But 20 years later, they had an altogether more successful performance in the 2015 Rugby yeah, World Cup. where they beat South Africa. Yes. Where they beat South Africa. Um, I think the score again was uh, 34-32 um, with Japan turning down several um, opportunities of penalties late in the game um, to score in the corner. And that was notable for a number of things. A, it was Japan's first victory against a Tier 1 country. Um, And South Africa, no less. And South Africa, no less. Um, they've since had a draw with France, I think, a couple of years ago, 2017. Um, and they've certainly come on leaps and bounds in the past two or three years. Mm-hmm. Well, it's quite a big transformation to go from losing 145-17 back in 1995 to winning against South Africa 34-32. And I remember that game really well because I turned up, I think, at like 78 minutes into the game at a friend's house. And it was on the TV there. And they were losing at that point um, by one try. And they pushed it to 86 minutes, so six minutes into overtime. So mm-hmm. it was a pretty incredible game. So this game has gone down in a legend, obviously in Japanese rugby, but in just world rugby as well. When anyone talks about the 2015 World Cup, 
they think about that game. They don't think about the final. They don't mm-hmm. think about the semi-finals. They think about Japan beating South Africa. Um, and it is impossible to overstate how important that has been on Japanese rugby. I mean, there's a film coming out now about that one game. About that one game. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact is that when that, that game wasn't even shown live on TV. In Japan? Uh, yeah, because it was it was in the middle of the night and, you know, the Rugby World Cup at the time didn't have a huge audience in Japan, plus the fact nobody expected Japan ever to, to win, you know. And then they won and suddenly rugby is just massive in Japan, massive. And it made the 2015 team just massive stars. I mean, like Goromaru, the fullback, who no one, no one had ever heard of before the tournament started. Suddenly he's got like statues made of him. And he's just <laughs> like, and he became the world's richest rugby player as well because he had all these endorsements for TV, sponsorship and stuff like that. Um, he went to play in France for Toulon and got a big contract there. And yeah, I mean, it, it, was, it was huge, huge. So that game was pretty transformative in terms of rugby completely, in Japan. Completely. But it's the, the wider public that um, like the organisers of the Rugby World Cup want to reach. And if they can get something over the next month anywhere near what they got four years ago, then it'll be a massive success. Well, so on that point, what do you think um, this Rugby World Cup means to Japan and the Japanese people? Well, it depends. I mean, a lot of people have said that the tournament is going to be successful because... Japan knows how to organise a sporting tournament. It's a very well-run country. You know, the infrastructure is fantastic. So there's no problems on that front. But what is less easier to to say is just how much World Cup fever there'll be. Mm -hmm. Because rugby isn't a particularly... It's not a major sport in Japan. It's not like baseball or soccer. So, you know, most people don't understand the rules of rugby. And they wouldn't watch a game if the World Cup wasn't here. But... If they can build some momentum, if they can build some interest, then it could be huge. And the best way to do that is for the Japan team to win. Elliot, is it fair to say that the Olympics that are taking place next year in Tokyo have somewhat overshadowed the preparations for the Rugby World Cup? Uh, I think that's a fair point, to be honest. Um, I mean, even now you see a, a lot of fever towards the Olympics building uh, in Japan, especially as far as the media is concerned. Well, I think one <clears throat> one thing that the Rugby World Cup will have that the Olympics might not have is fans visiting because, you know, they'll come from Europe, they'll come from um, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Argentina, um, and they'll come and they'll be noisy and they'll enjoy <laughs> it, you know, they'll enjoy it and it'll be something different from the olympics it'll be all these people will be here and they'll be they'll be coming here to enjoy themselves both of you who lived in japan for well over a decade now what do you think international visiting fans can expect from this year's rugby world cup well i think there will certainly be a lot of interest in beer i think uh, <laughs> i think there's something like two million liters of beer was drunk during the 2015 World oh, Cup. Oh, wow, okay. <laughs> and they're expecting something similar uh, in Japan. Well, there was a story that came out a while ago, right, that urged local suppliers to restock on beer kind of well in advance because they were worried about shortages, right? That's right, that's right. And uh, I believe one of the breweries, uh, might have been, I can't remember exactly, it might have been down in Oita, 
um, was running like a special shifts um, and bringing in employees to work overtime to produce um, extra stock just so that they don't run out. I think a lot of the people come in here because the tournament lasts for over six weeks, so it's a long time. Um, But a lot of people will come here because they they want to combine a holiday with coming Mm. to the World Cup. So maybe, so they'll go to the games and then in the breaks between the games, they'll go sightseeing and they won't just stay in the cities, they'll they'll move about and... um, I mean, I, I saw a figure the other day, I can't remember how much it was, but it is estimated to have a substantial impact on the Japanese economy. I think, yeah, I think it's quite exciting that um, because a lot of people come to Japan and stick to that main kind of triangle of Toyota, uh, Toyota of Tokyo, <laughs> <laughs> of uh, that main triangle of Tokyo, Osaka, Kyoto, those kind of places, maybe going down to Hiroshima. Um, but the fact that this, this does spread to Kyushu and Hokkaido um, and does take people to places like Toyota, um, Kumagaya in the middle of nowhere, and Kamaishi, um, I think it's quite exciting that visitors from overseas will have a chance to see other parts of Japan. Yeah, not all the stadiums are particularly easy to get to. I went to Kumagaya last two weeks ago for Japan against South Africa. That wasn't so easy to get to. And the quarter, two of the quarterfinals are in Oita as well, which a lot of people think is slightly strange. But a lot of the stadiums <laughs> used are like traditional rugby stadiums, and I think that's the reason why. So Kumagaya is a big rugby area. Um, Hanazono, the, the stadium in Higashi, Osaka, that's been used, that's where they play the national high school tournament. So that stadium itself has a lot of history. I think they're trying to like reward the areas that... Um, have a long history with rugby and they'll have a lot of fans that will go to watch the games as well. One of the most interesting stadiums to me is the one up in Kamaishi, which I believe you visited, I've visited yeah, as well. Yeah. So that's uh, up on the Tohoku coast, which was affected by the 2011 earthquake in a huge way. How do you think the tournament will help with their recovery? Well, that stadium was built on the site of the high school and the junior high school that was... Um, that was covered by the the tsunami. Um, so I went up there last year when they opened the stadium. And I don't know what it's like now, but at the time there was still a lot of people living in like temporary accommodation. Mm. And that was seven years after the disaster happened. So, I mean, there is only a certain amount that a sport tournament can do to the recovery of a, um, an area that's been ravaged by a disaster but you know i mean kamaishi is not a place that particularly falls under the global spotlight Mm. very often you know so for them to be able to host not just um two games in the world cup but they you know japan played fiji up there a couple of months ago um you know it does mean something and for those fans who are visiting more remote areas and don't know what to do the japan times does have a series of 12 articles which can be found at jtimes.jp slash rwc which actually cover all of those areas with a detailed weekend guide of what to do in and around the stadiums i think we should move on now to discuss some of the teams and you know who to look forward to um elliot who are you most excited about seeing at this year's rugby world cup oh it's a tough question um commentators 
worldwide, I think, have been saying this is one of the most open World Cups, um, perhaps of all time. Mm. I think there's probably a handful of teams that could win it. Um, ultimately, as, as I was saying earlier, it's going to come down to the knockout games. Um, you, you just have to win three in a row. Some teams... Oh, you do. I just have to win three in a row, no problem. <laughs> well, again, it's, it's harder for some teams to do than others. Um, New Zealand is probably has, is probably a strong favourite, um, but any of them on the day could, could win. I mean, New Zealand just lost to Australia recently, but whether Australia could win three in a row, that's, there's a big question mark over that. Well, the world, world number one is Ireland, so they've got some... Um, some potential, I think. It's, there's only one Rugby World Cup in history where the number one team in the world hasn't won. But Ireland have never been past the quarterfinals before. Yeah, Ireland is... have never won a knockout game at the World Cup before. After the last round of uh, games leading up to the tournament, the top 10 rankings moved quite a lot. Um, like, like a year ago, South Africa were in really bad shape, but now um, they've moved right up and a lot of people are talking to them as dark horses to maybe win it. Um, Ireland are the number one team, but there's some doubt about whether they can do it or not. Um, New Zealand, you know, you would, champions. Yeah, I mean, you would never back against, you would never bet against New Zealand, surely, because you know they've been the, they were the number one team for years. They've they've won it two times in a row, but at the same time, everyone's thinking, well. You know, they're maybe not quite as strong as they were before. And New Zealand also have a history of... Uh, Crashing of, out spectacularly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's not bring back memories of France again. <laughs> but then there's England and Wales and Australia. I mean, but then there's France, you know. I mean, France have been in the final three times. And let's not forget Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> well, Scotland... So, with japan's group is japan ireland scotland samoa and russia mm. and a lot of people would say that ireland are expected to win that group and then to reach the quarterfinals it would be between japan and scotland despite being scottish i kind of think if scotland imagine if scotland were to to be second and then they get to the quarterfinals and then they play new zealand Chances are they're going to lose that. Same thing happens to Scotland every single World Cup, and it doesn't mean anything. But if Japan were to get to the quarterfinals and play New Zealand, and even if they got annihilated by New Zealand, it would be huge. It would be massive if Japan got to the quarterfinals. That's what the tournament organisers want because it would just create so much excitement. People who know nothing about rugby and they just don't care about rugby, but they get the World Cup fever. That's what people want, the World Cup fever, and it would be brilliant if that happens. How much do you think the home advantage will help Japan? Um, I think I think it's huge, to be honest. I think that's one of the big disadvantages that the teams from the Northern Hemisphere, from Europe especially, um, will face. You know, the humidity is going to be a big factor. Um, ball gets slippery, you know, mm. um, in the heat of, you know, the contest. Apparently teams have been practising, um, the Wales team have been practising with balls coated in olive oil. And the, <laughs> the Scotland team have been um, practising with balls covered in shampoo. Oh, wow. Because, because, it's, to, because, because of the humidity. In the yeah, to cope with the humidity. Well, it's, it's interesting because it is a six-week tournament. So we go from now, the game yeah. starting this week in September, where it is still quite humid. But and it's ending cool in November, down, yeah. where it's going to cool down quite significantly. So it's going to be a quite different 
well, weather and style of play by the time we get to the finals, right? But weather in this country is very unpredictable this time of year. Mm. Uh, this time of year, there was a massive typhoon last week, um, which had that happened when the tournament was on, would have resulted in games being cancelled. Mm. And apparently, if a game is cancelled because of the weather in the pool stage, then what will happen is, Elliot, you could explain it. You know, um, as far as I understand it, um, the points will be shared. It will be considered a draw, um, and that could have massive uh, repercussions insofar as the pool could eventually turn out. Um, yeah, I mean, imagine if it's like uh, New Zealand against Canada or, um, you know, South, uh, New Zealand against Namibia or something like that, and it mm. ends in a draw. I mean, mm. that just <coughs> completely blows open the... Um, you know, the, the bracket for the, the knockout stage. Or even um, Japan versus Ireland. I mean, if they share the points that um, Ireland would be hoping to win. Mm. Uh, and then Japan just need to win two other games, really, and there's a strong possibility they could go through. Who do you think is going to win, Elliot? Well, the, the, win the whole thing, I mean. My citizenship would probably, probably be revoked if I said anyone else other than New Zealand. Um, <laughs> to be honest, I can see it being a New Zealand versus either South Africa or England in the final. Well, my citizenship might be revoked for saying this, but I just have the sneaking feeling that England are going to win. Ooh. Because, <laughs> you know, Eddie Jones is a coach and, you know, he preaches the importance of peaking at the right time. Mm. Um, and England look like they are coming into form going into the tournament. Um, and, you know, like with England, they always find some way to just grind out a result, even if it doesn't look good. <laughs> Can yeah. I just jump in and say, uh, interestingly, um, not one of the, I think it's 31-member squad of the England team have ever like, played an international game in Japan. Um, so that's something. Eddie Jones, of course, is familiar with, you know. The well, I was going to say that, like, so Eddie Jones was obviously coaching Japan for the last World Cup. He's got a lot of experience with Japan and a, a lot of experience running other very successful sides. How much do you think his experience of Japan will play into the England team's mentality and give them somewhat of an advantage? Well, he's already playing the mind games. I think he's already come out and said that the humidity is actually going to work in the England team's favour for, for some reason or another. Maybe they've been practising with shampoo or olive oil or something. <laughs> I'm not sure. But um, I think he's got an insight into the culture. And so at least as far as... Um, like getting the players acclimatised to the surroundings and the, f the food, for example. Mm. I think um, he'll be helpful in that regard for sure. In terms of the conditions, he'll, he'll also be um, quite knowledgeable. And one thing we haven't talked about is um, the tackle height, which I think um, could become a fairly significant issue in this World Cup. World Rugby have instructed the referees to clamp down on anything above shoulder height. Um, so anything, whether it be accidental or not, um, could be sanctioned um, and it's most likely to be either spending time in the simbin um, or off altogether and that already proved fatal in terms of New Zealand's game against Australia. Uh, I think New Zealand and South Africa and, and even England I believe um, have practiced with playing um, one man short if not two men I think South Africa are even playing two men short uh, during their training sessions recently in order to kind of mimic the situation where they'd have to be played with a man down. Mm, two men short with olive oil covered balls. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so at this point it's a wide open tournament. Anything could happen. And now we just have six weeks of hopefully fantastic rugby to look forward to. Without a typhoon. Without a typhoon. Fingers crossed. fingers crossed. Thank you both very much for joining me in the studio today. Thank you very much. Thank you.
That was The Japan Times' Elliot Samuels and Andrew McCurdy. And you can read all of The Japan Times' reporting on the Rugby World Cup online at japantimes.co.jp. Now we leave the studio once more to head to the misty shores of Lake Kawaguchi in Yamanashi Prefecture, where I met with 63-year-old Patrick McIntosh, who cycled almost 12,000 kilometers from the UK to reach Japan in time for the World Cup's opening ceremony. Our original plan had been to cycle around the lake together to record the interview, but pouring rain forced us off the road and into the lobby of Patrick's hotel. We are here in Kawaguchiko, next to Lake Kawaguchi, which is at the base of Mount Fuji, and have come out here to meet Patrick McIntosh, who has just completed cycling all the way from the UK, from Twickenham Stadium, to Japan, to see the Rugby World Cup. So my first question to you, after 12,000 kilometres on the bike, how are you feeling? Remarkably well. Uh, physically, I've had absolutely no uh, injuries or illnesses at all, which seems quite extraordinary. Uh, and I am in a great physical shape. I've lost a bit of abdominal fat, obviously, as one does uh, when one's consuming vast amounts of calories, but I've been able to eat well. The most extraordinary thing is I've done it all on a vegan diet. Uh, and so, therefore, part of my project was to prove to everybody that actually you can take huge amounts of physical effort and you don't need to eat meat or dairy or fish or anything else. You can actually do it on vegetables and nuts. And how have you found it being vegan? There's the clock going. Um, How have you found it being vegan in Japan? Extraordinarily easy. Um, Even more so in in Russia, I have to say. Uh, Cycling across Russia, you would think they would just eat meat all the way across. And yet the fresh vegetables, the beans, the nuts, the the whole way of life, particularly cycling through Russia in the summer where you can pick up fresh food all the way along off the side of the road has been remarkable. But also in uh, Japan, everybody said, oh, it's, you know, everybody eats raw fish and, and meat and so forth. Actually... Um, I've been able to eat vegan food in every place that I've stayed and the specialisation with which they prepare um, beans and and various other vegetables has been quite remarkable. Fantastic. And I think the next question is probably an obvious one, one you probably get asked all the time, but why have you done this? There are a number of different reasons. I'm a triple cancer survivor, so I've had my bowels removed, I've had radical prostatectomy, and I've had skin cancer, and I'm still alive. Um, After I had first suffered those three cancers, I walked unaided to the South Pole uh, and raised a huge amount of awareness about early diagnosis, eating better food, taking a bit of exercise and remaining positive. After that, when I got to the South Pole, strangely enough, um, there was a bicycle, would you believe it, at the South Pole. There was a tent there and I was staying in a tent with a bicycle and I was actually able to cycle round the geographic pole that sits there. And so I hold the world record for the only bloke who's walked to the South Pole, having suffered triple cancer, and then cycled around the world in 30 seconds. <laughs> and having then done numerous talks on uh, walking to the South Pole, almost inevitably, when you go to the Q&A, the first question is, what are you going to do next? And after a while of not knowing how to answer it, I said, oh, I don't know, I'll cycle around the world properly. And I've always loved rugby, and I've been going to Twickenham for the um, best part of 35 years. Um, and so I thought, well, why don't I cycle to Tokyo? And not many people have cycled across the Trans-Siberian Railway from St. Petersburg to Vladivostok. So I cycled up across Europe uh, and then across to Vladivostok and then around Japan. 
and then I'll cycle back next year across America and through Iceland and the home nations back to Twickenham. Um, but I also then thought, well, if I'm going to do this, uh, let's help uh, other charities. So I'm uh, raising money for World Cancer Research Fund, uh, which is very much speaks to my theory, which is that huge amounts of cancer can be prevented if we were to eat better food and take a bit of exercise. About 40% of all cancers only occur because people don't look after themselves well enough. Um, and so their work is very much on how can we reduce the incidence of cancer in the first place because all health services, particularly in Japan, but also in Europe, are struggling because of the age wave mm. and the fact that we can very much more easily live into old age if only uh, we looked after ourselves better and therefore we'd be much less of a demand on our health services and the other uh, charity I'm raising money for is St Catherine's Hospice which is a, a local hospice close to where I uh, live in Surrey uh, uh, and Crawley they're building a much larger hospice now uh, and they need about £6 million to complete the project. Uh, and because hospice really affects everybody in my particular area and has touched everybody's lives, I felt that this was a, a combination charity along with the World Cancer Research Fund that worked extremely well. Uh, and uh, so therefore I'm raising awareness, uh, I'm helping people to eat better food um, and I'm also trying to raise some money for these two very valuable charities. How many days have you actually been on the bike so far and how many countries have you been through? So I have now been through six countries so far and I've been on the bike for about 139 days. You did ask me earlier, what was the, uh, how did I feel? And I gave you the physical answer. Mentally, um, like all of these things, uh, it is an incredibly more difficult mental challenge than it is a uh, physical challenge. Cycling, when you have to get up day after day, whatever the weather is, whether it's boiling hot as it has been in Japan or freezing cold as it was in Denmark, or utterly, utterly boring as it was for thousands and thousands of miles across Russia where you simply cycle across a plain and it just doesn't change for a month. Uh, at a time uh, is extremely mentally challenging to get up and cycle another 70 miles or 100k every day 100 kilometers every day and what do you do to get yourself through that through a month of cycling the kind of flats of russia um i'm afraid you're either born with grim determination or you're not and i'm afraid i seem to have been given huge amounts of grim determination um i've been left on this planet for some weird reason uh to raise awareness about these things and so therefore behind it all was uh, the determination that i was jolly well going to get to tokyo uh, come hell or high water and despite having my bike nicked and floods and fires and ambushes and all sorts of other bits and pieces somehow we made it so tell me about bit more about your time in Japan. Um, where did you come into the country? Where have you seen and, and how's it been? I'm terrible at um, uh, names so I'm, I have to apologize. I caught the boat from Vladivostok which went via South Korea and I ended up in South Japan, Shina something or other. Uh, anyway, um, uh, and I then cycled around the bottom of Japan across a whole load of islands uh, and then I've been working my way gently up um, 
the Pacific coast uh, to where I am today. And of course, cycling in Japan is much, much easier than cycling across Russia. But the one thing about Japan is the hills and the variants. And so it was, it was like I'd died and gone to heaven when I got off the boat and I cycled across the beach uh, and then started cycling through the rice fields and the southern part of Japan. I mean, it was, although it was boiling hot, 35 degrees, it was just absolute heaven, and I absolutely loved it. And that combined with the scenery, the hills, uh, the food, and everything else has been a, just a total joy to be in Japan, total joy. And so you have two days left to get to Tokyo in time for the start of the Rugby World Cup. Um, how will you celebrate when you arrive in Tokyo? And uh, yeah, let's go with that question first. How will you celebrate when you arrive in Tokyo? Well, I'm, I'm destined to be at uh, uh, the stadium uh, in two days' time. Um, I believe that I've got various media uh, engagements with uh, the BBC and various other people. I think in terms of celebration, um, uh, I don't tend tend to drink very much so I won't be getting drunk or anything like that. I think I'd just be extremely relieved uh, to be there uh, and very proud of the fact that I've been able to do this uh, and, and uh, yeah, I, I think it's self-satisfaction I think is probably my highest um, uh, motivation for, for just being there. And you'll also be attending the first game of the Rugby World Cup Japan versus Russia. Yes, uh, I've got tickets for the Japan versus Russia game. I was asked by the BBC uh, whether I, who I'd be Supporting, and I said to them that I think I'd have to support Russia given <laughs> the fact that somehow I managed to get across Russia without being killed, mugged, um, lost or anything else. And I have to say the Russians, the stereotype view of Russians is actually completely wrong, as is most countries. And uh, it was much more wonderful uh, than I expected. So I will be supporting Russia, even though I'm sure Japan will play well and probably will beat them very easily. Um, but uh, anyway... It, it will just be great to be there. I've done every World Cup since about 1991 when it was, I think, back in the UK. Or no, it was in Wales, wasn't it? It was in 2003 in Sydney, so it doesn't get any better than watching England win the World Cup in 2003. So I probably won't stay for the majority of the matches in Japan. I will probably go home, partly because, sadly, uh, I'm actually missing home. I really am. I would just like to go home, uh, <laughs> uh, having spent four and a half months on a bike um, so I'm here until the end of September so I'll see some of the games some of the pool games and then I'll go home and you said next year you'll be completing your world trip by going across America but at the same time Japan has the Olympics would you be tempted to repeat your journey back here to come all the way to the Olympics as well? Well, again, I've done quite a few Olympics in my life, including the London Olympics a few years back. Um, but I did my first Olympics back in 1972, which just shows you how old I am, uh, when they had that horrible uh, incident with the Israeli uh, team being massacred terrorists. But, so I've done a lot of Olympic Games, and I have a connection with the Olympic movement through my father, who was a member of the International Olympic Committee. So I've done quite a lot of Olympics 
through my life. So, no, I, I won't come back here for the Olympic Games, although I'm sure Japan will put on a fantastic presentation and do it extraordinarily well. Um, but, no, I, next summer I will pick up my trail in Seattle uh, and cycle all the way across uh, America, out through Canada, Newfoundland, and then uh, catch a boat across to Iceland, cycle around Iceland, uh, and then come down to Shannon in uh, Ireland, cycle around Ireland, go up through Northern Ireland into Scotland, and then come down through Wales and back to Twickenham. So I'll have done all the home nations. Um, and the only country uh, of any, or oh, two countries, I suppose, of any importance in Europe that I will have missed will have been Italy and France uh, in terms of rugby uh, uh, stuff. Well, what a fantastic adventure. If people want to find out more about your journey or... Uh, donate to either the fantastic charities you're supporting um where should they go they should go to at kmg foundation uh hashtag life cycle uh they can look there they can look up uh, my Facebook page, Instagram page, and my Twitter page, and they will see lots of uh, postings, information, detail. You can see where you can donate through Virgin uh, into the program. But as I said earlier, I, I, while I'm raising money, the most important thing I'm doing is raising awareness that um, if we want to live enjoyable, long, happy lives, it's about early diagnosis, it's about eating better food, it's about taking a bit of exercise, and it's remaining positive. And that was my raison d'etre for doing this cycle ride, to get that message across. So I hope that uh, Japan Times will help me to promote that uh, important message for as many, many people as possible. I'm incredibly lucky to be alive, and I feel I'm here to give that message back to as many people as possible. Congratulations on the journey. Well done for making it and good luck with the last 100 kilometres or so to Tokyo. And thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for allowing me to give you these words of wisdom. That was Patrick McIntosh and the link to his website will be in this week's show notes. My thanks to him and all our guests this week, including Alan Gilpin of World Rugby and the Japan Times' Elliot Samuels and Andrew McCurdy. You can find all of the Japan Times' coverage of this year's Rugby World Cup online at japantimes.co.jp and more episodes of Deep Dive by following us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and pretty much every other podcasting service out there. If we're not on a platform that you like to use, please do let us know by tweeting us at at Japan Deep Dive. Thanks as always for listening and until next time, Podskare Samar.